Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Anthony Brooks, and this is On Point. This week, as Democrats laid out their case to remove President Donald Trump from office, they said nothing less than the future of American democracy is at stake. Here's House Manager Adam Schiff in his closing argument late last night. If right doesn't matter, we're lost. If the truth doesn't matter, we're lost. Framers couldn't protect us from ourselves if right and truth don't matter. But the argument didn't appear to sway the president's Republican defenders in the Senate. Fidget spinners, long breaks outside the chamber, as GOP senators said they heard nothing new. Here's Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming. What we heard from the, the managers yesterday, the day before, it is the same thing day after day after day. Impeachment is item one in our Week in Review this hour, and you can join us. Have you been watching the trial this week? Any part of it? Has it swayed you one way or the other? Join us anytime at onpointradio.org or on Twitter and Facebook at On Point Radio. And we've got a great panel with us this hour to sort through the week in review all the news. Catherine Lucy is a White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal, and she joins us from Washington. Catherine, welcome to On Point. Great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Karen Tumulty. She's a columnist at The Washington Post covering national politics from Washington. Karen, as always, thanks. Always great to have you. Thanks for coming back. Great to be here, Anthony. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point News analyst Jack Beatty. Hello, Jack. Hello, Anthony, Catherine, and Karen. Good to have you all here. So obviously lots to talk about. Let's dive right in. Um, House impeachment managers uh, are expected to include uh, conclude their opening statements today. Then the president's defense team will have a chance to present its case. Before we talk about that, what stood out for all of you this week uh, in terms of the, the case that the Democrats brought? Karen, let me start with you. Well, I, I was really struck by just sort of the, the sheer volume of it, the fact that the House impeachment managers are, you know, essentially laying out the evidence, I think, in a very effective and well-organized way. And I, I think that, you know, are, are they going to change any Republican senators' minds? I right now would bet against it. But I do think they are convincing the American public that, that this is, in fact, a serious exercise, not just some sort of impulsive partisan, uh, you know, effort to overturn the results of the last elections, which is what, you know, Republicans keep saying it is. Right. Um, Catherine, what did you hear? What's sort of uh, on top of your list as you look back at this Democratic case, uh, the case that the Democrats brought this week? Well, one of the things obviously I'm watching very closely is how the White House and how Republicans are reacting to this, but also how it's being received more broadly by the public. And and I think Karen is absolutely right that this is a serious case that uh, the managers are really seeking to lay out a, a huge amount of evidence. But we are in this moment of such deep political divides and, and such such deeply sort of entrenched political beliefs 
that I'm really wondering if this is moving many hearts and minds at this point. There was some polling I saw out of the AP this week that showed that you know, opinions on whether the president should be removed really are, you know, very starkly divided along party lines and that most people on both sides of the aisle don't think it's very likely they're going to hear anything that will change their minds at this point. Well, let's hear a little tape from this week. House impeachment managers continued their opening statements yesterday, often circling back to a central argument that President Trump acted in his own self-interest. So here's uh, the lead manager, uh, California Congressman Adam Schiff, urging senators to act. The president has confirmed what he wanted in his own words. He has made it clear he didn't care about corruption. He cared only about himself. Now it is up to us to do something about it. To make sure that a president, that this president, cannot pursue an objective that places himself above our country. And here's South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham uh, talking about his reaction to Adam Schiff's case, suggesting that Adam Schiff did a pretty good job. Here's Graham. He's well-spoken, did a good job of uh, creating a tapestry, taking bits and pieces of evidence and emails and giving a rhetorical flourish, making the email come alive, sometimes effectively, sometimes a little over the top. But uh, quite frankly, I thought they did a good job of taking bits and pieces of the evidence and uh, creating a quilt out of it. So what I will tell my colleagues is the other side gets to talk and see if they can pull a thread here and a pull a thread there and see if it holds up. That's Congressman Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Jack Beatty, um, Adam Schiff uh, certainly uh, was, had a lot to say this week, hour after hour in some cases. What, what did you hear in his case? Well, first, I think that his case has to be saluted as a, as a singularity. Um, Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute, the congressional watcher who's been watching Congress, I guess, over 50 years, said it was the most brilliant performance he had seen he'd ever seen in Congress, uh, largely impromptu, simply occasionally looking at notes, gesturing, uh, not with undue histrionics, uh, raising his voice when appropriate, uh, but always speaking lucidly and making points. Uh, it was an it was an extraordinarily impressive performance. And one of the points he made was, all right, senators, what's the danger of leaving Mr. Trump in office? And he posited things. He said, the Russians, we, we have read, we're not, it's not sure yet, have hacked Burisma, the, you know, the controversial uh, energy company for which, on which uh, Hyder, Hunter, Hunter Biden served on the board. Are they going to weaponize what they found? Are they going to start flooding our um, our airwaves through, you know, WikiLeaks or uh, the new Guccifer 2.0 or something else? Are they going to start flooding the the news with uh, information and misinformation picked up from that? And will Mr. Trump have the the courage? Will he have the sense of the national interest to denounce that? He said it, it, is, it is not likely he will do anything that will hurt himself. And then he posited China. He said the president has called out on China to look into what Biden had some business dealings there, too, Hunter Biden did. 
are we going to hear, is China going to weaponize that? And are, is our media going to spread that? And is the president going to resist that? He said it is so unlikely what we know about the, this man. And he looked at all of them. He said, what you all know about this man is that faced with a conflict between the national interest and his interest, he will do what's best for himself. Listeners, we're talking about the week in review, starting off, of course, with the big story this week, the Democrats' case in the Senate in the impeachment trial against President Trump. And you can join the conversation. What did you hear? Were you moved? What did you think of Adam Schiff's, in particular, Adam Schiff's presentation? Of course, uh, a lot of the other managers spoke as well. Let's go to Carl, who's calling from Nashville, Tennessee. Carl, thanks for joining us. What's on your mind? Thank you. Um, I absolutely think that uh, Adam Schiff... Uh, along with this team of managers that since that's uh, come over from the House of Representatives, have done an excellent job at putting the case forward for a conviction of Donald Trump and for his wrongdoing. Um, and I believe that they're really talking to the to the American people. And that leads into my to my question and almost a plead uh, to the media to please stop calling my senator here in Tennessee, Alexander and Mikowski and Susan Collins, these people are not moderates. They vote party line every time. There's no maverick in any of these guys. So for for the media to really hold these people out as moderate Republicans is kind of it's kind of um, uh, false representation to to the American people, especially the ones that don't pay attention. Uh, day in and day out to these type of things as we do. Uh, so to call these people moderates is kind of disingenuous because they vote party line every time. And I don't look for them to cross party lines at all. I got it, Carl. Thanks for that. Um, uh, Catherine Lucy, let me put that to you. The the the, mo- the so-called moderates that Carl takes issue with, Lisa Murkowski of, of uh, Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine, and Senator Alexander of Tennessee. Um, is there, a, 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 do they represent a moderate faction that might, I don't know, create some opening in this Democratic case? Well, these are lawmakers that are viewed as more persuadable, I think, certainly, and and at times have not stuck with the party line. And so they're being watched very, very closely right now. And I think there's two things to think about here. There's the ultimate vote on, on whether to impeach the president, but there's also procedural votes that will come up again on whether to call witnesses. And so I think one of the things that is being watched very closely is would enough of these Republicans join with Democrats in supporting calling witnesses and and calling for more evidence and how that would impact the way this trial unfolds. It would obviously go longer, more things could be revealed. Um, and, and, and that's something that Democrats obviously are looking for. And right now, it's really not clear. Uh, you know, they're, they're playing it quite close. The president, I was talking to someone in the White House today, was saying that, you know, the president is, is sort of staying hands off on this. Um, so they're not uh, putting a lot of pressure there. And so I think that is something in the coming days we're going to see is if there is any kind of block there that would support that. Yeah. Karen, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, go ahead, Karen. I think I think moderate is not really the way to think of this moderate versus conservative. Um, and certainly we did see, for instance, Murkowski and Collins buck their party on Obamacare. So that that was a big vote. But what the question is, I think, is institutionalist versus party line senators. Mm. And I think the entire Republican caucus, I mean, the Republican Party right now is Donald Trump's party. And when you look at somebody like say, Lamar Alexander looking at 
you know, Trump probably has an approval rating back home in Tennessee among Republicans at over 90 percent. That is really the force. It's not an ideological thing. It's an institutional thing. Really interesting distinction there. Listeners, we're talking about the week in the news, beginning with Senate impeachment trial against President Donald Trump. Democrats laid out their case this week. What did you make of it? Next up, the Republican defense of the president. We're going to get into that after the break. What do you expect to hear? We'll be right back. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken?, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. It's day four of the Senate impeachment trial. And while most Americans are ready for the weekend, the Senate will keep working. As the Democrats wrap up, Saturday will likely mark the start of the president's defense. We're also talking about other news this week, including the Trump administration's decision to roll back environmental protections and school lunch rules, and from the presidential campaign trail, a Bernie Sanders surge. Catherine Lucy, Wall Street Journal White House reporter, is with us. Karen Tumulty, columnist at The Washington Post, and Jack Beatty, uh, On Point News and analysts are all with us, and you are with us as well. So let's go to Josh, who's calling from Augusta, Georgia. Josh, good to have you. Go ahead. I'm a prosecutor, and I loved Adam Schiff's final uh, argument. I know the founders warned about a backslide towards tyranny, but Schiff's argument recalls the warnings of Mark Twain and Henry David Thoreau that personal profit, selfish interest, and greed would replace our higher ideals. And and Adam Schiff really said we could cleanse our nation of Donald Trump's I'm going to win this game show at any cost mentality. And that that appeals to something deep in the American strain, this cleansing and purging of, of, and then replacing with with higher ideals that our nation stands for. So I loved it. It should go in history and all prosecutors' handbooks. Josh, thanks so much for that call. Jack Beatty, I want to come back to you and get you to respond to Josh's comment because you you, you were impressed with Schiff, uh, with Schiff's uh, performance this week. But here's my question, and, and uh, I think it was Catherine who, who brought this up. If it's, a fore, if it's a foregone conclusion that the Republicans are going to acquit the president, the Democrats surely know that, what was the true goal this week or what was truly accomplished by the Democrats this week in your view? Well, I think they brought out the truth. It is the truth that the president abused the powers of his office. It is an abuse of the presidency to 
essentially uh, extort, be, try to extort behavior out of a foreign power to help you uh, with your domestic political – to defeat your domestic political rivals. And he – the sec, that's the first count of the impeachment. And the second, he undoubtedly obstructed Congress's investigation into this by his carte blanche, no cooperation, no documents, no nothing – uh, stiff-arming Congress and essentially daring the Congress to impeach him. So uh, the truth, that is the truth. I mean, the, the Republicans say, well, you know, the, there, there, there are other versions of the facts. There are only alternative facts, such as, for example, the Republican fact of corruption. What the president was really talking about on that phone call with uh, President Zelensky was corruption. He wanted corruption in Ukraine investigated because he's, he's, he, he, that's, a, that's an important value for an American president. First of all, there's no mention of corruption in, that, in, in the president's uh, comments, although the talking points he had from his staff put that down. What, he, what did he talk about? Burisma, the Bidens. I want information on that. I want you to announce an investigation into my political rival. And second, on corruption, uh, Karen's colleagues this week uh, have come out with an important book uh, called A Very Stable Genius that tells about Trump, Trump's, Trump's attitude toward corruption. Near the beginning of his administration, at a meeting, he said, I think we should repeal the Corrupt Foreign Practices Act. I want American businesses to be able to bribe foreign officials. And because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage if we can't bribe them. And his secretary of state, uh, you know, uh, retained his composure and said, Mr. President, we can't do that. That's a we can't you can't just, you know, pretend that law overrule that law. Uh, it's it would take an act of Congress. And uh, so the president then turned to Stephen Miller, his faithful apparatchik, and said, Stephen, prepare a memo where a de- declaration. We're going to you know say that law is off the books. We're not going to pay attention to it. Presidential decree. The president wanted the, the ability to corrupt, a bit for American businesses to corrupt foreign officials. That's his attitude toward mm. corrupt. Well, let's, um, I want to get some uh, of the president's uh, defenders and the president himself into this conversation. So here's Jay Sekulow, a member of the president's legal team. He said the case that Democrats laid out was more of the same and doesn't change anything. We're hearing the same things over and over. That's the way they're going to do the case. I will assure you this. We will be putting on a vigorous defense of both fact and rebutting what they've said. Uh, our job here is to defend both the president, the office of the presidency and the Constitution. We're going to do that. And here's President Trump, um, who didn't seem very bothered by the impeachment trial during his trip to Davos, Switzerland, uh, during a press conference at the World Economic Forum on Wednesday. He suggested the Democrats don't have the information they need to remove him from office. When we released that conversation, all hell broke out with the Democrats because they say, wait a minute, this is much different than Shifty Schiff told us. So we're doing very well. I got to watch enough. I thought our team did a very good job. But honestly, we have all the material. They don't have the material. Honestly, we have all the material. They don't have the material. Catherine Lucy, what did you make of that quote, first of all? Well, for one, I don't know that the president is not bothered per se by this. I mean, we know that, you know, privately, uh, you know, impeachment is certainly on his mind. He's been tweeting incessantly in recent days since he came back from Davos. And and he's well aware of what it means to be the third president to be impeached mm. by the House. Um, 
He is, though, making very clear that he is confident that ultimately this is not going to – that he, he believes that, that, that he will not be impeached by the Senate. And I think he also made clear in Davos that um, he had a lot of concerns about any – the idea of any further information about witnesses. He was asked, you know, would, would he agree? And he said, oh, you know, I'd love to have John Bolton testify or, you know, Pompeo testify, but – Uh, There's national security concerns that would prevent it from happening. And so making clear again that the the White House, you know, sort of uh, effort to block information, block testimony is likely to continue. Mm. That that's what's remarkable about that statement, too, where he's he's boasting we have the material. It is uh, absolutely confirming the second article of impeachment here, which is obstructing Congress. It, not necessarily absolutely confirming, but certainly uh, giving Democrats something to latch onto and say, yeah, this is exactly what we're talking about, right? So I, you know, it, it, the president's statements, and if, if one thing that's been sort of interesting about this, it, at watching this, the the managers do their arguments is is how often they have sort of interspersed their arguments with clips, video clips of the president's own words. Right. So, Karen, I want to stick uh, with you and ask, what do you expect to hear from the Republican case, which, as we mentioned, could uh, begin as early early as as tomorrow? I mean, they're going to argue that Article one fails uh, because House Democrats don't have the evidence that they (laughs) that they need. And 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 on item two, obstruction of Congress, they're going to argue is not an impeachable offense. How are they going to lay this out? What do you expect to hear? Well, they are going to make one of they're going to make a number of arguments, one of which is going to be that there is no underlying crime here and that, you, you know, this is the what constitutional how many constitutional scholars can dance on the head of a pin. But um, they will make the argument that you can't impeach the president without an underlying crime. They are going to make a lot of arguments about process. But the basic facts of what the president did and why he did it, I think, are pretty clear at this point. Let's uh, get a couple of callers uh, back into this conversation. Gabe is calling from Cambridge, Mass. Go ahead, Gabe. You're on the air. Good to have you. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. Um, So, uh, you know, if Chief Justice Roberts is going to admonish the House managers for calling, uh, uh, you know, the the, uh, president's lawyers liars, for saying false things, and he's going to say you can't, you know, it's inappropriate to call people a liar, then it seems like it should be his responsibility to not allow lying. And specifically, I'm thinking about, you know, the you know the Fox News propaganda idea that the Republicans were shut out of, uh, you know, the, the, the deposition room uh, in, in the Congress when they were, uh, you know, interviewing uh, witnesses, uh, you know, for the in, in, impeachment. Uh, in, in investigation. I mean, that's just a, a, a total lie. Everyone knows it, but it was allowed to get said. And the other uh, concept they keep put, putting out there is that, you know, the Democrats want to overturn uh, the last election. But the last election was in 2016. The last election was 2018. And there was a blue wave because America voted to put a check on Trump and to stop him if something like this happened. All right, let me, so Gabe, you put a couple of good ideas on the table, and I want to get our panel to respond, but I want to take one more call uh, first from Steve, who's calling from Des Moines, Iowa. Go ahead, Steve. You're on the air. Hi there. Hi. Um, I thank you for your time. Uh, I've been watching these impeachment 
uh, the sessions very interestingly because I find this stuff fascinating. Um, and on the first day, I was pretty well convinced of the uh, president's uh, uh, guilt and that he did do something wrong. I tuned in the second day, and I had to stop listening and, and think, am I hearing highlights from the first day? Because this is all the same rhetoric that I heard the, on, on the previous day, just laid out in a, in a different form. And after a while, I started to, um, um, to lose interest. And when I got home from work, I turned on the TV to, to watch it live, and I noticed as the camera panned around at times that there were other se- is, uh, senators that were not really paying attention or kind of drifting off or going, we've, or the expression of the face said, we've heard this uh, be- is, uh, 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 before. Got it. And it's for me. Yeah, go ahead, and Steve. And for me, that's just not doing good. Got it, Steve. Yeah. Jack, let me come to you about that last point that Steve's making, the risk of oversaturation, I guess, of all of this. Well, sure. I mean, uh, the Democrats uh, on Tuesday got a chance to uh, sort of surface their uh, their their arguments. And they, uh, you know, they use the time to sort of uh, give adumbrated versions of here's what we're going to be saying. The next day they said it and then they said it again. So, yes, if you've been watching consecutively, it can feel uh, tiresome. At the same time, your civic conscience reacts against that. Right. I mean, this is really serious. And the and the and the the repetition is 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 part of, I suppose, the point. In other words, the Democrats are trying to make a this is the evidence is overwhelming and it is uncontroverted. Yet the Republicans have yet to make a factual uh, attempt a factual uh, refutation. Perhaps they will in coming days. But and then as to Gabe's point, you know about the uh, the quote lies. One of the president's attorneys, Mr. Cipollini, was in fact saying those very things to the Senate. You know they they shut the president out. They wouldn't listen to his uh, his. They they wouldn't call the witnesses. They wouldn't listen to the president's. Uh, we had no. We were shut out of the room. We. All of that is false. And people were saying this is the kind of thing you could get you disbarred if you did it in a, in a regular uh, courtroom. So it was a, it was a shameful uh, moment there. Mm. I want to begin. Also, Anthony, this issue of repetition, I think Steve makes a good point. And it's not just about the viewing public. It's about the folks in the room. And we heard from senators, I mean, including some of those. Uh, you know, so-called moderates who who might be sympathetic to more witnesses, more evidence, saying that there this there was a lot of repetition. Lisa Murkowski, for example, is one of the people who said that she felt like she heard a lot of repetition, and so that is potentially an issue for Democrats going into a third day of this. Um, Catherine, let me stick with you because I want to begin uh, to move away. We're going to talk about some other issues this week, but this is still related. Are there other to, issues? Yeah, apparently there is, and I'm afraid that this next question is still somewhat related to impeachment. But while the of impeachment course. was under way in the Senate this week. President Trump was attending the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. What stood out to you about that trip and whether or not he was able to use it to draw attention away from the impeachment trial? Well, a couple of things were going on with that trip. The president certainly has been trying to continue to do things that make him look presidential and sort of do his job. And this is a you know a strategy where he's continuing to do events. He's got a lot of, he's, he's uh, on, you know, today is Friday, he's attending a 
a, a Right to Life march. He's got rallies next week. He's got a, a Middle East uh, sort of event next week. So this is part of that. Um, and But one of the things he wanted to do in Davos was go there and tout his recent achievements on trade and economics. So the you know, trade, this phase one trade deal with China, the, um, the North American, you know, sort of updated trade deal he's done with uh, Canada and Mexico. So he wanted to go there and make sort of an economic pitch about how America is doing, show himself on the world stage doing that. But of course, as we saw in that press conference that he did that, that you aired a little bit of recently, he, the impeachment still follows him wherever he goes. And so... Very quickly, the conversation at that press conference with reporters turned to impeachment and what's happening back home. And so he can't really escape this process, whatever he is doing at the moment. Let's take another call from Susan, who's calling from Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Susan, good to have you. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Thank you. I have a question for the panel about whether we have any information about the responses of the independents to the impeachment hearings. Because we hear over and over again what seems clear that Democrats aren't changing their minds and Republicans aren't. But I'm curious about independence. And in Maine, at least one-third of the voters are independent. So this is an important block to understand, and it's one that's potentially amenable to new information. Susan, it's a great uh, question, and I'm not sure I've got the answer on the top of my head. I want to defer to my panelists, but I will say that uh, WBUR, WBUR WBUR.org, just did a a new poll, and one of the things we polled was a reaction of likely Democratic voters in New Hampshire to impeachment. And there was a distinction uh, made between Democrats and independents. So if you go and take a look at that, you might begin to get an answer. But let me ask my panelists, Catherine uh, or Karen, do you have any uh, any ideas for Susan? It's an interesting question. You know, overall public opinion on the question of impeachment and the removal of Donald Trump from office really hasn't changed much since right after the um, first revelations of President Trump's July 25th phone call. But one thing that is showing up in the polls and even among a majority of Republicans is now that the Senate trial is underway, there is a very strong majority. Two-thirds of the overall population believes that the Senate ought to bring in some more witnesses. So I don't think opinion is changing on sort of the outcome because I think everybody expects it. They know how it's going to turn out. But opinion of the process by which this is happening does appear to be moving uh, against the Republicans. That's an interesting uh, interesting point. So here's some, here's some numbers from a recent Reuters Ipsos poll, which came out Wednesday. 44% of adults in the U.S. say Trump should be removed from office. 15% say he should be reprimanded formally with a congressional censure. 31% said the charges should be dismissed. So evidence there of uh, this division that we spend a lot of time talking about. After the break, we'll talk about the Trump administration's policy decisions you may have missed this week and the latest from the 2020 campaign trail. You can join the conversation. Are you an Iowa or New Hampshire voter? What do you make of Bernie Sanders surging in the polls? I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. 
from WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. Welcome back to our Week in Review. I'm Anthony Brooks. In other news this week, travel limits placed on 35 million people in China over fears of spreading the deadly coronavirus. There are 830 confirmed cases of the virus, 26 deaths as world health officials try to contain the outbreak. The trial against Harvey Weinstein began this week in New York. At least six women are expected to testify against the former Hollywood producer. They claim he raped and sexually assaulted them. You can join the conversation about this week's news, including the latest from the presidential campaign trail. Karen Tumulty of The Washington Post, Catherine Lucy with The Wall Street Journal, and On Point News analyst Jack Beatty make up our sharp panel of news observers, and I'm happy to have them. And let me talk about some other stories Uh, this week. I want to start with you, uh, Karen. The Trump administration took aim at kids' nutrition today, and you wrote a piece on this, and your headline said the president picked the wrong food fight. What's going on there? Well, the, the, uh, the administration is rolling back some of the school nutritional standards that were put in place while Barack Obama was president, you know, as part of uh, First Lady Michelle Obama's initiative for healthier kids. And these were based on the latest understanding of nutritional science. It, they required more fruits and vegetables, for instance. And under the new standards, kids would be fed a lot more, you know, pizza and French fries. Now, the argument that they are making here is one that I think they don't have a lot of evidence to back up, which is that changing it back to sort of a junkier diet would would eliminate a lot of food waste. But what we've seen over and over again is when uh, Republicans have, have sort of taken on what people are feeding their children and specifically in the school lunch menus, they they tend to lose those fights. We can recall, for instance, when Ronald Reagan proposed that that ketchup and pickle relish be classified as as vegetables. And during the House Republicans, their first big mistake, I think, in 1995, after they took over, was trying to turn the school lunch program and other nutritional programs into a block grant system. So um, I my hunch is that these regulations are going to get a lot of pushback. And this may be one where we see the the Trump administration uh, being forced to reverse themselves. Um, uh, Catherine, there was another one, the Trump administration finalizing rules to weaken environmental protections for streams and and wetlands. And and, and this would roll back another set of Obama-era protections, essentially. And and, And I gather that the move is seen as a victory for the fossil fuel industry, real estate developers, and farmers. But it's just a reminder that uh, the work of government in this particular administration goes on, even in spite of the impeachment trial in Washington. 
I mean, yes, broadly, that's absolutely true. The, the work of this administration continues. And we've seen the president sort of check off a number of things on his list, you know, throughout this process, both this month and you know, before the end of the year with things like the USMCA trade deal, for example. Um, on the, the, the waters rule, this is also something that has political benefits for the president. He is, you know, promised repeatedly to, you know, remove regulations. He sees farmers, for example, as a key, you know, voting bloc that has supported him in 2016. He wants to support him in 2020. He appeared at a, um, a Farm Bureau Federation event uh, on Sunday and was hoping to sort of unveil this um, this change then, and it wasn't quite ready. But he sort of referred to it in that speak as a ridiculous regulation. So this is something that he also sees as a, a political boon. Well, speaking of politics, I want to move on and talk a little bit about the 2020 presidential race. The Iowa caucuses are just 11 days away. The New Hampshire primary follows that a week later. And there are signs of a continuing Bernie Sanders surge. A couple of national polls show him running even with Joe Biden. Other polls show him at or in the lead in Iowa and New Hampshire. I mentioned that recent poll by WBUR that we commissioned this week. It showed the Vermont senator with a double-digit lead in New Hampshire, running against Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, and Elizabeth Warren. Um, What do you make, uh, Jack, I'll come to you, what do you make of the Sanders surge? Well, uh, I, I, I guess in some ways it isn't surprising. He's he's known to from the last uh, from the last cycle, uh, so he has an advantage over, uh, say, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, uh, and also he's 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 consistent. I mean, he's been saying the same things for forty five years, and people recognize the integrity of that, and young people especially are responding. You know, it is remarkable. I've seen this pointed out that uh, Senator Sanders has been criticized from the left. Hillary Clinton tried to put him on the defensive about guns and his votes on guns. And uh, there were some issues about immigration. But he's he hasn't really faced sustained criticism from the right or from the center of the Democratic Party. And a couple of weeks ago, Larry Summers came out with a a report that if you add up all of uh, Senator Sanders' proposals, uh, it would double the federal uh, budget in 10 years. Hmm. Double it. Now, that is, that's, you know, perhaps all of that is justified. But that sort of criticism, wait a minute, you're going to double the federal budget if all of, if you get all all the things you want. Uh, That's a, that's the kind of uh, fact that, that a, a Democrat could have used to say from the center to say, Senator, this is economic – this is potential economic ruin. We can't pay those taxes to double the federal budget. But it's he's in, been spared that and he's got – you know, and he's, he's riding high. It's interesting, Karen. I'd love to get you to comment on this. I, I, I was uh, – to Jack's point, I was speaking to former Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank recently about the sort of Sanders surge and, and – uh, you know, Frank is arguably more of a centrist. Um, he, he said his problem with Sanders is that while he advocates a lot of individual positions that are very popular among Americans, to Jack's point, when you start talking about an expansion of government overall, that's where you start to lose people, or at least that's where you start to lose centrists like Barney Frank. What do you think? What do you think of, of what we're seeing out there on the campaign trail? 
Well, what I've seen, I, I was in Iowa just last week, and what I'm seeing is a very, very fluid situation. Uh, the polling in Iowa, for instance, shows that the number of voters who are either completely undecided or have sort of picked a candidate but say they could be convinced to change their mind is at very, very high levels for this for this late moment in the season. Um, I, I just think that so much of this is going to uh, sort itself out because we finally get people starting to vote. Um, but it's going to—it's this campaign season is going to move very, very quickly because four weeks after the Iowa caucuses to the day is Super Tuesday, and probably by the middle of March to late March, we're going to know either who the nominee is or. The f- or that we're likely to be headed to a every political writer's dream, a contested convention. We've got a caller, Andy's calling from Dubuque, Iowa. And uh, Andy, you're a precinct captain in the in the Sanders campaign. I understand. Hello. Yes, uh, my name's Andy, and I am a precinct captain for Bernie Sanders in the 20th precinct. So, what do you see out there in Iowa? I mean, obviously, you're 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 on the Sanders team, but uh, tell us what you're seeing and feeling on the ground there. I'm seeing a lot of excitement uh, when I'm knocking on doors. I mean, not everybody wants to talk to me, of course, but, uh, you know, just in general, excitement for the caucus that's just right around the corners. I, I think we're nine days away now. Right. All right, Andy. Well, thanks uh, Thanks so much for the call. Let's go to Melissa, who's calling to Young uh, from Youngstown, New York, with a comment about the uh, campaign. Go ahead, Melissa. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. I appreciate uh, talking to you. You know, I just, I'm, I'm making a comment mostly about the fact that I believe that Pete Buttigieg is being ignored by the press. Um, you know, we're hearing so much about Biden and Bernie Sanders and, you know, all the ones that are stuck in Senate chambers during these proceedings. And here's Pete Buttigieg pounding the pavement, and the press really aren't giving him the attention that he deserves being out there, you know, um, well, Melissa, let me. I'd like to hear some comments. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I just wrote a column about him from <laughs> Iowa last week. So. Yeah, I mean, I would say as well. Um, I can speak sort of less forcefully about the national picture, but uh, as the political reporter here in Boston, we've been paying a lot of attention to Buttigieg up in New Hampshire, where he was on top of the polls up until our recent polls. So I'm not sure I agree with you, Melissa. I think there, Buttigieg is, has been having a moment. I just think lately. The Sanders surge is sort of hard to ignore. But uh, I also think in Iowa, in the early states, there's a lot of coverage locally of all of the sort of there's a, there's a cluster of candidates that have been in the top of the polls. And I think they're all getting a lot of coverage. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you all about this uh, comment by Hillary Clinton uh, that really ripped Sanders this week. The Hollywood Reporter published an interview with Mrs. Clinton promoting a new documentary about her that's going to air soon, that's going to come out soon. In it, she really tears Sanders apart uh, pretty ruthlessly. She says, quote, nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He got he got nothing done. He was a career politician. It's all just baloney. And I feel so bad that people got sucked uh, into it. Um, so Sanders responded, uh, when asked for his response, um, Sanders said on a good day, my wife likes me. So let's be clear. So let's clear the air on that one. <laughs> but Karen, I'm puzzled by why Hillary Clinton, I mean, I understand the bad blood between Clinton and Sanders goes back to 2016, but why a Democrat would want to sort of throw a Molotov cocktail, uh, into the middle of the democratic race in this way. What's your take? 
Well, I, I don't get the sense that a lot of people are just sort of dying to hear from Hillary Clinton at this exact moment. But I, I just couldn't help but think what it must be like for her to like wake up every single morning knowing she is the person who lost this election this in 2016. And that is why Donald Trump is president. So it it is almost like it sounded like she's looking for other reasons that she lost besides just the fact that she lost. Mm. It does. It also makes, I mean, I I do think there's an element of um, reliving 2016 in a lot of ways. A lot of people, you see this from the president a lot at his rallies. He's, he frequently talks about election night and how that unfolded and when that, those numbers came in and what that felt like. And I think there's, she, you know, she, she's also a person who appears to still be fixated on that, on that night. So, uh, as we mentioned, just uh, 11 days or so to go to Iowa. As you look ahead, um, Catherine, let me stick with you. As you look ahead yeah. to Iowa, what's the big question you're looking for an answer to? Other than the obvious one, who's going to win? Who's going to come out I mean, on the top? One, although the one, I think one thing that will be interesting to see with Iowa is not just who comes out on top, but the, there's some changes to how they're going to release the information this time. So we will see more data in terms of not just who ultimately wins the caucuses, but who wins the sort of first round of um, of, of alignment, for example. So they, you know, they, they, they gather, they see in most places who gets to 15%. Then the candidates, you know, whose supporters don't meet 15 prints have to redistribute. So we're going to see more information about sort of the different rounds of voting. And so that could be somewhat revealing, I think, about where support is and where people are moving. Really interesting. Karen, what about you? What are you what are you looking forward to understanding, getting a clearer picture of out of Iowa? I am absolutely fascinated with that point, too, that we may have, you know, one candidate claiming to have won the popular vote and the other claiming to have won the exactly, electoral college, yeah. essentially. But I'm also very, very interested in turnout because um, I, this is going to be our first test in this cycle of democratic intensity. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, you know, if we see roughly the typical, say, 170, 180,000 people, I think that suggests the Democrats should be very worried. If we see numbers approaching what we saw in 2008, you know, 240,000, which, by the way, is only a small sliver of the electorate in Iowa, uh, that does suggest that there is something big out there. Really interesting. Well, uh, Karen Tumulty, Catherine Lucy, I want to thank you so much for joining our roundtable today and helping us sort through what is, uh, once again, a hugely busy week in the news. Catherine Tumulty, columnist at The Washington Post covering national politics. Thank you, as always. Great to be here. And Catherine Lucy, Wall Street Journal White House reporter. So great to have you. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. And uh, Jack Beatty, in the, in the couple of minutes that we have left, I want to talk to you about the passing of Jim Lair, who died this week at the age of 85. The Washington Post remembered Lair as an understated television newscaster. He co-founded uh, what is now the PBS NewsHour, which he anchored for 36 years. He also moderated 12 presidential debates, which earned him the moniker of the Dean of uh, Moderators. How do you remember Jim Lair? Well, uh, his gift, as you say, for lapidary understatement. Here's one. I'm Jim Lehrer. Terrorists used hijacked airliners to kill Americans on this September 11, 2001, another day of infamy for the United States of America. 
Well, that's, uh, that's, that's a way to talk about that was him on September 11th. Uh, there was a, a grace and a decency and a, uh, and a respect for the intelligence of, uh, of his viewers that was extraordinary. He had, he had tenets for journalism. Among them was the viewer is as smart and as caring and as good a person as you are. Another, there is at least one other side or, or version to every story. Uh, he, another, do nothing I cannot defend. And he said, do not use anonymous sources except on rare or monumental occasions. No one should be allowed to attack another anonymously. The, those are those should be graven on every journalist's <laughs> hmm. every journalist uh, note, notebook. It's it's extraordinary. I want to read this uh, from the Washington Post today as well. I mean, he had his he had some critics, and 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 uh, they cited media critic Jack Schaefer, who described Mr. Lair in a 2000 interview with the Post as so vacant, so impassive that you can end up mapping him onto anything you want. Fairness is overrated if fairness means challenging nobody. And uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Jim Lair was undeterred by that. And he said, if somebody wants to be entertained, they ought to go to the circus. Uh, My job is moderating (laughs) a debate is different than if I were interviewing the men. It's their job to debate. It is not my job to debate. It's my job to facilitate their exchanges. So um, there we are, remembering veteran TV newsman uh, Jim Lair and debate moderator. He died this week at his home in Washington, D.C. at the age of 85. Um, Jack Beatty, thanks so much for helping us remember Mr. Lair, and thank you for your time, and have a great weekend. Thank you, Anthony. And uh, On Point listeners, you can continue to listen to this show and get involved in the conversation. Get the On Point newscast, uh, On Point podcast at onpointradio.org. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive, because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone for getting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. 
Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. 